Welcome to Beyond Backup, the definitive podcast for chief information security officers, SaaS platform owners, technology leaders, and developers alike. Thank you for tuning in. And while listening to this podcast, you will learn about SaaS data protection best practices and insights on data security, backup and recovery, archiving, and cloud data replication. I'm your host, Demetrius Malbro, Director of Technical Evangelism at Own Backup, a leading SaaS data protection platform for some of the largest SaaS ecosystems in the world, including Salesforce, Microsoft Dynamics 365, and ServiceNow. Today, I speak with Andrew Davis, Senior Director of Research and Innovation at Capado. Andrew is a Salesforce DevOps specialist who is passionate about helping teams deliver innovation, build trust, and improve their performance. Before joining Capado, he worked as a developer and architect at Aperio, where he learned the joys and sorrows of release management and led the creation of Aperio DX, a set of tools to enable Salesforce CICD. And on this episode, we discussed the Salesforce development lifecycle, some of the most challenging aspects of security when developing on the Salesforce platform, and the advantages and disadvantages of developing in sandbox environments. So let's get right into this episode. Welcome to Beyond Backup, Andrew. How are you today? I'm doing great, Demetrius. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you. Awesome. Really a pleasure to have you on. And I really would like to just start with just maybe a short background on yourself and also um, Capado, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So I've been with Copado for the last three years. And for folks who are not familiar with Copado, Copado is a tool that helps ease the development lifecycle, DevOps and testing, especially on low-code platforms like Salesforce and ServiceNow and SAP. And so a lot of uh, DevOps activity, um, as we'll talk about, you know, happens on custom with custom application development, but Copado focuses on these big SaaS platforms. Um, so I came to Copado three years ago because I'd been really studying and focusing on this topic for the last eight years. I basically reached out to Copado, said, hey, I'd like to join you. What do you want me to do? Uh, so I got started on this topic really because I was a, a, a Salesforce developer, but I Eight or nine years ago, I just moving into the Salesforce world. So I was the junior person on the development team. So I was the one that they mm-hmm. made do the releases every week because nobody else wanted to do it. Yeah. So I uh, that sucked, and I just <laughs> thought, thought there's got to be there's got to be a better way to do this stuff. And so I, that started this long process of researching and figuring out more about how to make this more efficient. Well, awesome. And so I, I have your, your book in front of me, Mastering Salesforce DevOps. And to be honest, I have not had an opportunity to read the entire thing. So uh, I am still working my way through it. And I'm not sure it's it's a book that you, you sit down and you just read from you know, page one all the way to page <laughs> 600. <laughs> right. It's uh, it's more of, you know, you you kind of dig in as to the the section and topic that you that you are kind of working on at that particular moment. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's a it's a good it's a it's a good reference book. There's a there's a lot of material in there. And, you know, that's a that's for better or for worse. There's a lot of material in there. So it's got answers to a lot of questions. But again, 
yeah, it's it's not maybe just to sit down and read it casually or in one sitting. The first few chapters are definitely more overview, but, but basically the book is is a a record of what I learned over a number of years of trying to research and and put this into practice, uh, trying to port DevOps concepts into the Salesforce world. Awesome. And so since you are the master of Salesforce <laughs> DevOps, it's declared that you are the master. So we, we will all virtually bow down to Andrew <laughs> on the podcast. While we have you here, why don't you, you break down the entire DevOps movement for us, including how it started, especially around like some of the technical practices uh, like version control and CICD, you know, and, and how it's been adapted to in the Salesforce world, if you don't mind. Sure. You know, there's a, there's a lot of people who are, you know, depending on what generation you're from, a lot of people who say, you know, I was doing DevOps before DevOps was a thing. So DevOps became a thing in about 2009. It sort of got that name, but it... Um, it is the evolution of a huge variety of uh, techniques that uh, development teams used to ease their processes and the the operations team if you, teams if you will database admins sys admins network admins and so forth the the techniques and processes that they use to try to manage uh, make their life sane and and make their work easier um, the the term DevOps really speaks to the idea of these two groups with diametrically opposed goals. Developers, their job is to change things, uh, and to you know they get paid to build new things and to change things. Operations folks, their goal is to keep things from breaking. And there is a fundamental conflict between changing things and preventing them from breaking, because. Uh, because there is, because of the laws of physics. So, so naturally, there's there's a potential for conflict and, and misgivings between these groups. And so uh, part of it is just opening lines of communication, building empathy across di organizational divisions, uh, and then figuring out what kinds of processes and tools might work best to make the whole thing run more smoothly end to end. So there's a huge body of the DevOps movement that focuses on tools and practices and and then there's a there's a huge aspect that's focused on culture and human communication and collaboration um, and fundamentally that's what we're doing in in development teams it's a bunch of humans working together trying to get the computers to work together and that's a lot of moving pieces and potential conflicts of interest and complexity and so devops i i think is just gathering some of the best thinking about the whole software development process uh, and then you had asked also about the porting it over or adapting it to the Salesforce world. That's there's been a lot of energy happening in that for the last five years or so. And I, you know, the my taking interest in this just, you know, happened to be at a time when a lot of energy was was building around this this topic because Salesforce was getting more and more and more complex. Salesforce orgs were getting more complex and really needed a professional way of managing the development life cycle. And so, you know, I, I view the, the book and a lot of my work and, and a lot of what Copado does as building bridges between these two communities and two bodies of knowledge, Salesforce specialists and low-code specialists, and then the DevOps world. So you mentioned the Salesforce development lifecycle or process, and tell us a little bit about that. And also, uh, I, I remember reading 
in the book that you, you thought that process was generally fun and straightforward. Can you explain <laughs> that to us, please? <laughs> that's that's uh, you did actually read some of the book. I'm <laughs> impressed. You know, there's there's this pipeline between the number of people who get interested in the of topic, number of people who actually buy the book, number of people who actually read the book, and the number of people who actually finish the book. It's a very diminishing numbers as you go through, or for, for any topic pretty much. But um, yeah, so I guess in reverse order, you you called out in the, well, you quoted me, so I have to defend it now that Salesforce development is generally fun and uh, straightforward. Salesforce has made you know, made made a really, really big deal of inviting people into their development community who came from non-traditional, you know, not from traditional software development backgrounds. And they've tried to make their training fun and approachable in Trailhead. They've tried to make their their applications pretty easy to develop. Things like App Builder, where you design a user interface, or Flow Builder, where you design a set of processes. Um, they're, they're pretty straightforward because they close the gap between the, the, the vision you might have in your mind of what something should look like or how the logic should flow. They, by using low-code elements, uh, they make it so that more people can... Uh, close that gap between the vision they have and what it actually takes to implement it, as opposed to trying to work through code, whether that's you know HTML or JavaScript or PHP or something. So I'd say the creative aspect is what I've always found fun. I got into development because I like solving puzzles. People bring a problem, and I try to you know find a solution, and and that was great fun. And then there's uh, my concern was that there end up being an increasing number of miserable bits in between all of the fun creative parts and like like figuring out how to do deployments and you know trying to figure out why something used to work and now doesn't work and so there's a there's a whole variety of other challenges that can arise as your salesforce org becomes more uh, more complicated that basically dilute the fun creative problem solving activities with some some pretty mean, hairy uh, challenges, um, debugging challenges, and so forth. And is I imagine that that security is is also a one of those challenges with, and and not to say that ransomware has anything to do with developers or the you know SDLC and you know CI/CD pipeline, but I would say that there may be a a line or a thread that does go into how developers are building tools and and maybe we'll get into that a little bit later, but I, I want to get your take on what do you think, I guess, are the most challenging aspects of security when developing, let's say, on the Salesforce platform? Yeah, um, I, I guess I'd, if I tack one, one additional unusual aspect of the Salesforce software development lifecycle um, is that you've got a lot of people who are not, as I mentioned earlier, professional coders or are relatively new to this process. And so they may be relatively early in their learning journey. They didn't get a computer science degree. They didn't take your mandatory you know, six credits on uh, computer security and so forth. And so there, there's a, a degree of naivete, you know, to some degree about the, in the Salesforce community. And, and in general, in software developers, there's a degree of impatience. Um, and that is not necessarily conducive to security and secure development. Um, and so there's, you know, the more pressure teams under to build new stuff and the, you know, the more challenging it is to try to figure out what changes you need to make to get something to work, the less mental capacity you have to think about things like security. And so 
you know, you were, it sounded like you were kind of wavering a little bit about whether to implicate developers in the security concerns, but I would say they're definitely mm. implicated mm-hmm. in the security okay. concerns. Just, just because the, the, the way you build something, you know, almost always has security implications. Okay. Yeah. Now in terms of uh, security on the Salesforce platform, the good news is that Salesforce takes care of a whole lot of stuff. Right. Uh, in, when we were planning, thinking through the show notes here, we were talking about infrastructure security and identity and access controls and multi-factor authentication and so forth. Right. So Salesforce builds all that stuff in. So there's a lot of stuff you get for free, so to speak, if you're building on Salesforce. And that greatly lessens the security risk. Salesforce, ha- you know, Salesforce is basically taking on that risk for you, and and maintaining professional security teams, red teams, and and so forth to try to ensure that they've got uh, their their securing their infrastructure. But that can lull folks into a false sense of uh, security. Pardon the pun. Um, that there's nothing that you need to do if you're building on that platform. And that's where we get this idea of a shared security model where Salesforce is doing their part, you need to do your part. And you need to be looking at you know, the permissions that you're giving to things because it is possible to open things up too widely. It is possible to open yourself up to security risks. Yeah. And we, we use the analogy of the shared responsibility model being like an apartment building. And so Salesforce would be the apartment building itself, the platform. So they're responsible for making sure that the there's a gate code and a gate, you know, out front. But if someone happens to give someone outside the code to the gate, then they could possibly get inside of the apartment complex. And if they have your key, maybe they can get inside of your apartment itself and take what whatever's in there. So that that same analogy uh, holds true for this as well. Just around, you know, maybe some of the the dangers of developing directly in production, because I've I've heard that in order to to get code out, you know, really quickly and really fast, uh, sometimes there's a um, a propensity to maybe let's just do it in production, right? What are your thoughts around that? And I guess what are some of the dangers of you know maybe developing and deploying directly in like your produ- production org? Yeah, um, in, in in the book, there's a section near the very end called "Locking Everybody Out," uh, of of, of uh, which means locking them out from being able to make significant changes directly in production. And that was the section that I probably cited most commonly in in many places in the book. I'm like, see the section later on on locking people out. And uh, there's a story I tell in there about Salesforce's own journey to get people to stop developing live in their production org, Org 62, the big 24-year-old org that they run on. The, the thing, when you see Salesforce demos and so forth, they just show you building a thing and they show you how cool and easy and fun it is to build the thing. They generally don't show you, you know, the challenge of merging that thing with the other things that other people have built and deploying them and so forth. And so some people do get started in Salesforce just doing everything live in production. And that works perfectly well until you start getting users in your production org and until they start actually depending on that system for their daily work. And even then you can get away with a lot of stuff, but one day, one of these days, you're going to break something and you, 
and you're probably going to break something bad. You're going to break something in such a way that for the rest of your life you join the rest of the IT community in knowing deep in your heart that you should never yeah. do that right. stuff directly right. in production. And and that's the gateway to the development life cycle. Um, and uh, the Salesforce does have one restriction where you can't write uh, code uh, directly in the production org. You've got to deploy that. And so that forced people from, you know, to back in 2007 when they rolled out Apex, that forced people to um, start using a development life cycle. Yeah, once you've got a uh, development life cycle, then you have all the challenges that emerge when you begin to have multiple environments and have to synchronize. Mm-hmm. Okay. And wh- wh- where do sandboxes come in, come into play around just, you know, not developing in production, but, you know, maybe in a sandbox, you know, wh- what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of developing in sandboxes? Yeah. So um, the default place, if you're not developing in production, the default on Salesforce is you're going to be developing in a sandbox. And Salesforce uh, actually has much more robust capabilities to spin up sandboxes than a lot of big enterprise platforms and clouds. So sandboxes are, are a you know, huge benefit uh, for experimentation and, and so forth. And so in general, sandboxes, normally they're cloned from your production orgs. They're an they're a exact copy with or without data, depending on what size of sandbox it is and what you want to use it for. And yeah, so as I said, sandboxes open up the door to experimentation. They open up the door to you making changes without um, the risk of breaking things in production. The next challenge then is how to, and they also open up the open the door to being able to have multiple developers in multiple sandboxes in parallel, experimenting in parallel without messing each other up. So just like you don't want to develop in production because you might mess up the users of the system. If you have too many developers developing in the same sandbox environment, they can mess each other up. Like I was working on something and it used to work and then it didn't work. And hey, Demetrius, did you change something? Because, you know, why is my thing not work? So, but then it opens, it, it then begins to require this next level of challenges, which is how do you replicate the changes and how do you replicate all the changes you do need and propagate them to all the other environments. And the more other environments you've got, the bigger the challenge that is and the more you need DevOps, ideas, processes. Um, and that's where you know commercial tools like Copato also become uh, indispensable. Yeah, I really like that. And you know, this is also a, a place where where it's important to make sure that you know, that you have a good backup, right? Because, you know, if you are developing, um, you know, in your sandbox environments and, and you're trying to move really quickly and there's multiple developers there, then, you know, th- there are some security concerns as well. Like you may have a developer that's a contractor and the information or data that you want to, you know, supply to that person, you may have to make sure it's, if it's sensitive, you may have to anonymize it, right? And make sure that they're not looking at the same data that, you know, someone inside the organization is looking at. And uh, on that same wave, Andrew, what, why is it important to, you know, protect data during the development process? I would say back it up first and then back it up after your deployment. Why, why, do, you, why do you think that that's a good idea or do you think that's a good idea? <laughs> you know, I, I think there's a outside of the IT community, sort of in the popular world, I think there is some conception that um, if if a website breaks, a system breaks, there's a problem on your computer, people assume it means you've been hacked. And 
well, certainly there are like hackings and these kinds of things. Anybody who's an IT professional knows that the main cause of problems in IT systems are other IT professionals mm -hmm. making changes. Human error. So uh, developers and sysadmins and so forth, they are the number one cause of system failures because it's their job to get in there and, and uh, mess things up. Um, you know, we, and we do our best, but at some point, at some point, it's extraordinarily difficult or prohibitively time-consuming to predict in advance the consequences of every change you make. So you're a developer, you make a bit of change to logic and seems to make sense, but then all of a sudden you start recalculating something in an incorrect way and all of a sudden you've scrambled some significant amount of your company's data or you run a script that worked fine in your development environment, but then you didn't realize the production environment's a little bit different and you end up you know, deleting a bunch of data or changing values you didn't mean to. So, you know, backup is like, like having these sandboxes creates a protection that uh, allows you to experiment. So backup also provides that level of protection that allows you to, to make changes without fear that there's something catastrophic that could happen. Right. Okay. Yeah, I um I really like that thought process, and you know one thing that I want to shift to, and I just um and, and maybe I want to talk about this. It, it was an episode I did on 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 my my podcast about APIs being the devil, and you know sometimes APIs can open the door for things that you might not know <laughs> that you're opening the the door to, right? So what, what, what role do APIs play in the development process? And, you know, why is that important to, to make sure that those are also protected or, or locked down, Andrew? Yeah, um, good, good question. So uh, APIs are, are, they are, in fact, like a, they're kind of behind the scenes, that critical aspect that allows for integrations, allows for automation. Um, and in many cases, Salesforce has its own native APIs that are controlled by the security that you provide for the data model and, and so forth. But you can also be building custom APIs, either on the Salesforce platform or in systems like MuleSoft and so forth that you connect to. So it's basically this whole other hidden layer of communication that can be happening um, where if if that's not an area that you spend a lot of your put a lot of your focus and energy in, you're just thinking about the user interface and you're just thinking about those aspects of the system that are exposed to humans directly, and you may be ignoring uh, the possibility of you know accessing data inappropriately or yeah, it's it's basically it's another whole layer that you need to be thinking about when you're thinking about what is the uh, surface area of your applications. Okay, and I I often see this term called shift. Left. I, I think I know what it means, but I want to get your definition of it, and just to make sure that the listeners here understand what what is that term shift left when they see or hear someone say they're shifting left. What does that really mean, and how does it impact the overall cost of you know developing in the life cycle? Yeah, the idea of shifting left is um, uh, tightly related to some concepts from. A lean process and and things like total quality management that uh, arose in manufacturing and so forth in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. The the idea is that you can't add quality in later. 
you can inspect for quality through testing and and so forth, but you can't ever add quality in after the fact. The quality is always dependent on you know, the upstream processes. So the quality of development is depending on dependent on the quality of the planning process, and the quality of the you know data integration activities are uh, dependent on the quality of the development and so forth. So, and and the you know the the preventing the risk of production failures is dependent on the quality of testing so there's a there's a there's a dependency in this way typically we we depict the development life cycle from left to right as like a pipeline so you got all the planners and the developers on the left and the testers somewhere in the middle and user acceptance testing and production and the end users are all the way to the right and so shifting left means shifting your attention on quality from being something that is oh, no problem, the testers will catch it, or the user acceptance test people will catch it, or no problem, if there's an issue, users will just report a bug, right, and file a support ticket. So the further to the right, so to speak, in the development process uh, an issue is found, uh, the more expensive it is. And when I say expensive, I mean it's time-consuming for a user to submit a bug report. And if, you know, for every one user that submits a bug report, there's eight or nine or 10 users who are just going to ignore it and just curse and complain, but not actually let you know that there's an issue. So the point is to shift attention to quality further to the left. And that includes attention to security, like you and I were talking about at the very beginning. You know, how do you build security in? Well, developers are definitely implicated in the security process. And that's where there's um, doing things like um, running automated tests in like a test-driven development context where you're, the developers themselves are writing tests of their own work to make sure that they're doing their very best to put the, care, the necessary care in to prevent uh, functional defects early on. But if you have security scanning tools, um, you know, Copato has some security capabilities built in uh, to it as well through uh, tools like PM, PMD. It's a code scanning tool. Shifting those left means catching them earlier, giving that information to the developers while they're doing the development, because if you know about it while you're doing the development, you can fix it right then and there. If you do the development and you have to wait like a week, two, three, four weeks before you realize there was a bug, it's very inefficient because you got to switch back into that context to fix it. Yeah, I, I love that. And may, maybe shifting to, we, we spoke a, a little bit about the developer, well, maybe a lot about the developer, but what about these these administrators, like the Salesforce administrators? And, you know, you and I know we've been around in IT for a while, and, you know, I was a system administrator once in my life, and I actually uh, hold or held an AIX administrator certification, which is IBM's Unix version. Uh, and I, I managed backup systems back in the day where I used to have to install code. And I mean, it was it was a lengthy process. But, you know, what, what does it take to to keep the lights on uh, just in the data on a day to day perspective from a from a Salesforce administrator and in the Salesforce environment? What are some of the aspects of of just uh, the daily operations from your perspective? What do you see and what do you hear? I'm, I'm just stuck reflecting on the fact that we're getting old. Um, yeah, yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah. You see, I have a couple of gray hairs too. I'm I got, gonna, I, I got a few more that. than you do here, but um, <laughs> so I digress. But um, so the admins in Salesforce, I think the, the, the interesting thing about the term admin is that um, traditionally in traditional development systems, it meant people like, 
like what you were describing, system admins and database admins who really had to put energy in, who, who are highly trained specialists, right? You know, you, you had you, knowledge of Unix, knowledge of all the, you know, all these different aspects of the system that, and that knowledge was required just to prevent things from breaking or to fix it once it broke, once it broke and so forth. Um, Salesforce administration is comparably much, much easier. The Salesforce doesn't break generally. And if it does, there's nothing you can do to fix it. You just have to wait. Um, so administrators tend to do simpler jobs like assigning users and, you know, uh, maybe creating report types for people. But um, that's why administrators in Salesforce typically get into the actual creation of what you have to call applications. They're creating applications in a low-code way. They're creating new user, user interfaces. They're creating new parts of the data model. They're creating new flows and logic and so forth. And whether you know it or not, you know you might think you're a Salesforce admin, but you're also a developer at that point. You're, you've developed a software application. Um, and so really the keeping the lights on aspect for Salesforce is, uh, is not that hard, which frees up capacity for admins to be doing these, you know, contributing to these creative parts of the development lifecycle, actually building stuff. But the problem is the default, if your job is to maintain the production system, the default is you're going to make changes in that production system. And no matter how skilled you are, no matter how careful you are, there's always some risk that you'll make a change in your production system that breaks something. And that's why there's a need for for development teams in general uh, to have a very clear sense of what stuff is safe to be changed directly in production. I'd say things like report types and reports and dashboards and so forth. But, But it's a pretty small list of things that you should be messing around with directly in production. The rest of the infinite variety of configuration in Salesforce, you really need to be putting it through a development lifecycle. Um, and unlike with writing code, Salesforce doesn't force you to make a change to flow in a sandbox, but you need to do it anyway. And so that's why whether you're a dev or an admin or whatever your role is in Salesforce, if you're creating something significant and new, you need to be doing it not in production. And that's why you need to be plugged into the development lifecycle. And, and that's why DevOps becomes such an important thing for the whole team. Okay, awesome. And, and maybe one more question here as well before I let you go, Andrew. You, you mentioned sandboxes again, so I guess we can we can close it out with, with sandboxes. Are, are you familiar with, with sandbox eating? I am, yeah. You are, okay. From your perspective, what, what do you think are, I guess, some of the, the benefits of, let's say maybe a, a full copy Mm-hmm. sandbox and you know what do you see there are you having conversations with with um, developers that are utilizing uh, full sandboxes and maybe some of the things that they're they're doing with them and the importance of seeding seeding data yeah um i guess uh, going back to the idea of the development pipeline as like a linear string going from left development through to the right production um the further you get towards the right the more the larger the volume of data and the more realistic looking that data needs to be if you want to be able to test with confidence, basically to have have great confidence that the way something behaved in the user acceptance testing environment is going to be the way it's going to de- 
behave in production. Um, and so sand, uh, Salesforce facilitates that by having these different kinds of sandboxes, full sandboxes, partial copy, and so forth, that, that bring with them you know, substantial chunks of data. And then the developer sandboxes bring zero data. So Salesforce gives you these options. It's just not very granular control, right? Developer environments always have zero data in them. These full copy sandboxes always have everything in them, right? And partial copy, you can segment a little bit, but but typically you'll need finer grained control than that. You'll need the development environments to have some reasonable amount of testing data and some kinds of data in production has to be in the development environments to be able to confirm how things work. And then in the, um, yeah, the, the testing environments, there's certain things you, you have to be able to obfuscate uh, you know, certain sensitive data, you may want to replace it with a, spe a specific set of testing data. Uh, you may want your partial copy sandboxes to be augmented with additional body of data uh, from sandbox seeding. So all of that is part of creating a, it's, it's an investment setting that up. It's an investment in um, building out the pipeline in a way you need. But the point is, once you do that, it dramatically reduces the, the risk of every deployment, and it can can greatly aid the development process and reduce a lot of manual effort for people trying to set that data up. Yeah, and wouldn't it be nice to have a, a solution like you know own backup to you know facilitate that and automate that that seeding process where you can take your production data and you can only pick and choose exactly what you need to seed. Maybe create a template with that and just put it on automate and uh, have that you know ready to go. Uh, during your your testing process. So, Andrew, it has definitely been a pleasure having you on Beyond Backup. Uh, would you like to share your social media handles or? Yeah, um, you can typically find me on uh, LinkedIn if you search for Andrew Davis Copato. Uh, I am on Twitter. Uh, I'm not super active there, but I think it's Andrew Davis underscore IO or Andrew Davis dash IO something like that. Uh, I've also got a website, andrewdavis.io, so I try to keep a theme there across those platforms. Okay, and uh, maybe one more thing. Give me one book that you are reading right now that you want to share. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Um, I've got, uh, I, 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 I spoke earlier on about this pipeline of books reading that, it, that uh, you know, with, in my optimism, I've bought a lot more books than I actually uh, have read. But I'm working right now on, on an oldie but goodie, Lean Software Development by uh, Mary Poppendick and Tom Poppendick. It's from, I think, 2004, but it's, it's probably the first major work that combined lean principles from manufacturing into the software development process. Very short book, very readable, lots of brilliant ideas. Um, we software developer folks need to read more old books because all the best ideas tend to be uh, out there already. It's just this process of uh, re-educating the new generations and reminding ourselves. Or, or the process of shifting your brain left to get better quality, right? There all right. I, I guess I learned something and, during... And respecting your elders. Uh, so from, from two of us now elder-ish folks. Yes, or <laughs> respect your or elders. Or OGs or, or legends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all those things. All right, Andrew, thank you again. Uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, the listeners have gained a few nuggets of insights uh, during this conversation. So I appreciate you being on the show. 
That's a delight, Demetrius, and thanks so much for having me. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Beyond Backup, hosted by Own Backup, where we empower thousands of organizations worldwide to manage and protect your mission-critical data to drive your business forward. To learn more, please visit ownbackup.com and be sure to tune into our next bi-weekly episode.